This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by The Reckoner Rises, Volume 2, Version Control, published by High Water Press, written by David Robertson, colors by Donovan Yashix, art by Scott B. Henderson, coming this April, as well as The Black Hammer, a story written by David Robertson, illustrations by Scott B. Henderson, created by Jeff Lemire, published by Dark Horse Comics. <laughs> Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I'm Gregory Kamichuk. I'm looking around for my long-suffering co-host, Justin Curry, known the world over as Chasing Artwork. He is apparently in a boxing ring somewhere and may show up at any moment during the podcast, slightly out of breath and with a black eye. Um, I am also here with producer Dan Vetterbonker, who is going to be pinch hitting as my cross examiner today. And we have a guest on the show, Scott Henderson from the Way Way Back Machine, who has let us know it's been four years since he's been on the show, to which Dan and I both replied, Holy shit, we've been doing this for four years. It's been longer, uh, actually. Scott Henderson um, is a uh, long time. Winnipeg fixture of the comic book scene, uh, best known for his work uh, on Reckoner Rises, 150 Years Retold, the This Place graphic novel anthology, and uh, was nominated for an Eisner Award for Blanket of Butterflies. Thank you, Scott, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> well, now that we know how long it's been, I actually feel guilty that we haven't talked to you more often. But you've been so darn busy making comic book pages that who could ever find the time to just chat? Yeah, it was really hard to, I wanted to come back on and stuff like that, but it was just like, I don't have the time because I was, I had gone back to full-time, you know, day work sort of thing, uh, actually around that time four years ago, because some big life changes at that time, but now there's a lot of stability. So I just switched back to full-time illustration uh, in the last month or so. So this is a big deal because um, when we were texting back and forth over this last year, it was around the idea of you getting back into full-time illustration as your regular everyday, all day gig. Yeah. Um, and I think any listener to the show would know what a big deal that is to decide that your lion's share of your income will come from your passionate art life. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've done before, how you were balancing things, how the job versus comics world kind of fits for you, and just give people a little bit of context for you in general in case this is their first episode. Right. Um, well, I guess going back just to about the four years ago, I uh, due to some life changes, uh, I needed a more steady reliable income uh and as well paying as my illustration work was uh it just wasn't enough uh but then again neither was my at that time uh, other full-time job uh in a management position it also wasn't enough on its own so i was doing both of them at the same time um which meant lots of five-hour nights of uh sleep and that's about it uh also juggling uh, the family thing and having my visits with the kids and that sort of stuff. It was a very 
busy four years um, and it didn't really leave a lot of time for side projects. Uh, I had to really pick and choose what I could work on. Uh, I had to say no a few times, unfortunately. Uh, one time I said yes to something and then like a month or two later I realized I, sorry, I should have said no to begin with because there's no way I'm going to be able to do this and that, that was really awful. Um, and just like you've done thousands of pages, I would say at this <laughs> point, probably of probably. professional illustration. And um, why don't you run through a little bit about your back catalog for the dear listener? I'll, I'll set you up. I'll send you a little softball here. Mm -hmm. um, you do work with Portage and Main Press, as among other publishers. Uh, so you work often with other writers, yep. bringing their stories and their visions to life. Uh, on the page, but you also do some creator-owned work and have been doing a lot of work developing a number of series and, and ideas that are completely your own, partially just for fun and part, some, I'm sure, for profit. Um, tell us about your life in comics. Um, so my life in comics, uh, as you said, I've been, I've got more than 20 books now, published books under my belt right now. Most of that is through, is through Highwater Press. Uh, Seven Generations with David Robertson is what started it all, and it was profitable and successful enough that they keep calling me back, uh, often working with David, but also worked with several other uh, Indigenous Métis authors to help tell their story. So for them, uh, for Highwater Press and for those authors, I'm... I like to say that I'm ultimately just the tool to help them tell their story in a visual way to reach uh, a different audience or more audience, whatever uh, you want to say. Uh, I try not to put too much of my voice in it because, well, it's ultimately their voice that needs to get heard. So I'm like a, I'm kind of like just like a megaphone. Um, that is the bulk of what my paying work and what pays the bills uh, has been for the last. 10 plus years. Um, I do sometimes try to carve out some time for myself. I have my Chronicles of Era, which is my fantasy, sci-fi, steampunk, anything that I like and love about fantasy, sci-fi, I threw it in there into a, a bulky, uh, unwieldy, epic uh, story, uh, which was printed into two books, uh, part one and part two. That was in 2008. 14 and 2017, I think. Um, the, when creators say bulky or unwieldy, marketers say a feast for the senses. Yes. <laughs> uh, I did very much want to continue on with the Chronicles of Era, but then that's when a lot of the life changes happened and I just had to put the notes to grindstone to get uh, paying work and then having the day job and things like that. So it kind of just got put on hold a lot. Um, I've been since trying to get back into my own work um, or not, sometimes thinking of era, but again, it's very big and I have to figure out how to either break it into something smaller, more manageable, or to plan out the decade that it's going to take to finish that story. Um, but some other ideas, uh, other fantasies, sometimes uh, LGBTQ uh, plus related stories. Um, both fictional or possibly integrating some sort of historical type graphic novels and things like that. Uh, just lots of musings right now uh, on the personal stuff. 
more recently, I've also my catalog has been starting to expand beyond high water uh, press. Uh, ooh, ooh, can we talk about it? Uh, we can talk about one of them because it finally got published uh, online or, or not published. Uh, Announcement. It was announced online. So I have some more freedom about that. It was my, for several months, it was my secret project that I couldn't tell anybody about. But uh, David Robertson was approached by Jeff Lemire uh, to do, uh, to write a story for Lemire's uh, Black Hammer uh, comic book series through Dark Horse Comics. There was, uh, or there is going to be a, uh, I guess, an online comic sort of thing for it and some other comic uh, uh, writers and whatnot and their works. So we got to play in the Black Hammer universe, which was a lot of fun. It's a 10-page story that's coming out uh, in April, roughly, I believe. Now, for dear listeners who aren't familiar with the Black Hammer, Jeff Lemire's Black Hammer, it's everything I love about Golden Age storytelling through the lens of modern narrative needs and wants you know like the golden age the pulp era of comics uh was saturated with a lot of um shall we say direct to market just for a dime storytelling but there is there are some gold in them their hills and black hammer seems to look at that continuity of comic book place and time and say okay there's a rich place here and he sort of Jeff has sort of reimagined all these different comic book universes that are kind of adjacent to ones you would recognize and kind of done his own spin on it and his own twist on it. And, and I just can't wait to see your line work put to the test there. Yeah. I've yeah. been dying for you to work on a more superhero centric work the, ever since I saw your stuff, I thought you would be perfect fit for that. So I can't wait. Hey. Okay, then. Uh, I'll see you around. It is definitely one of my favorite uh, projects to have been worked on in the last year or so. As much as I love all my projects, you know, you love all your children sort of thing. I really do. But some children you just like a little bit more, or at least in the moment sometimes. Um, so in the, this moment, I very much like Bad Hammer as well as The Reckoner Rises. They're both the most fun because they're just... I like all the historical stuff that I do for High Water Press, but I also like to cut loose and just have fun with fights and weird mad science stuff or superheroes with the Black Hammer and things like that. It's just uh, a lot um, more fun. Often the criticism of uh, superhero comics is that, you know, there's not enough grounding or character building or historical context or uh, character context, but in, in, my opinion of your work you've done thousands of pages of that already so if you just want to draw an entire issue of someone punching someone else through a building you've earned it yeah. your body of work has earned you the right to just have some uh play time with some crazy sci-fi and comic book ideas i think well i think that's going to be some of the fun with the reckoner because not to give away too much that's going to be a whole lot of cutting loose by the third book certain so yes as i've heard now speaking of getting punched through a wall justin has just arrived in studio from his boxing class Whoa. covered in debris and brick dust <laughs> welcome justin we've just been catching up with uh scott here and all of his uh 
oh, I guess the map of his comic book work since four years ago when he was on the show. Was that the last time when you were you were really on the fence about making the leap and doing this full time? Right. That was our, that was the last conversation, if I recall correctly. Yeah, well, at, at that time, I was just transitioning into away from full time illustration work and having a full time day job uh, due to some life changes at the time. So gotcha. and this is perfect, because even without the context of what we've talked about up until now, folding you into the conversation here, Justin, is great because we've been talking about this a lot. About well, actually, I was I was thinking about our last conversation, too, because I think we were talking about the work-life balance and are we workaholics and is that a bad thing or a good yeah. thing what, what we do and the reason I'm late to the podcast is because if I don't go boxing or to the gym like every once in a while I feel like I all I have is is my work and I love my work but too much of a good thing really yeah. grinds you down so I wasn't super inspired this morning but now I'm all fired up that I've taken a break and done something else for a while with a different group of people and a different thing. And now, now I'm fired up to come back. Yeah. I'm definitely so a walksaholic. Definitely a walksaholic when it comes to that. Nice yeah. long mm -hmm. walk gets my head. So let's talk about journeys and destinations. Then I think this is perfect because the life of writing and making comics of expressing yourself on the page really is not a destination. If it was, you already got there. Anderson, you went there, you did that, you crushed it, your work is amazing and uh, well received. So you could quit. But it's a journey for us. It's not our destination. So you came back. Justin can't ever leave. He won't ever leave, <laughs> even though plenty of people try to call him away all the time to other media myself as well. I'm trying people are calling me for other projects. And we just cling to this damnable path of words and pictures together in a pile. Why do you do it, Scott? Why? Uh, I do it because that's what I've been doing since I was like four or five years old <laughs> with my first Winnie the Pooh story where I couldn't even write words at all. And I just did scribbly lines for all the, the text or whatever. And I've just always done it. I, I don't know anything else, <laughs> to be honest. So hopefully the world doesn't change enough that otherwise I'll probably be left behind or something yeah in my writing charts justin says that i still mostly just add squiggly lines so <laughs> i think we don't change too much from that uh what about you justin why don't you quit why don't you let the clarion call of game companies or uh tech developers draw you away from pictures with stories yeah i like and i still struggle with that right when when jobs come along that offer me money to do artwork it's there's that you know starving student part of me that still really wants to say yes to every everybody who offers me money to do work for them um but at the at the end of the day it's not nearly as fulfilling as as doing my own thing and then at some point after 10 plus years of doing this the math just kind of started to work out that my own thing started to earn me more than a lot of these little projects. So now I'm in the great position where I get to be very picky and choosy about what other projects I take on because my own stuff does well enough on its own that I don't need anybody else's support or, or, or bolstering. So that's a cool place to be. 
yeah. I feel I feel very lucky to be there. Now you're used to working with illustrators, Scott. Uh, pardon me, uh, um, writers to be the illustrator for it. But we all know everyone in this room. We can all admit, um, even the writer in me has to admit to the artist in me that writing is the easy part in comics compared to the drawing, the labor, the time, the research, the hours at the table. Um, you can be doing something else and come up with a great line for a story, but you can't be doing anything else and come up with a great panel for the comic. You have to be there working on it. So it's, it's the hard part, right? How do you tackle the hard part? Uh, in a very disorganized way that will probably frustrate other people. Um, Tell us all about it and we'll all yeah. share our own ones. Yeah. Um, I, well, my struggle, and we touched on this in the last uh, podcast as well, was I struggle with focus in that. I've since been diagnosed with ADHD, so I have a different uh, approach to that and trying to understand it and find ways to work around it. Uh, before I was always trying to just tackle, you know, your typical procrastination and that sort of stuff, which ties into it. Um, uh, because it's so, artwork is very time consuming. I mean, it's sort of not necessarily a lot of work, but it's time consuming, especially depending on what you have to do. Um, I've been because I'm now acknowledging that I'm very easily distracted, uh, I, I, I basically take things away from myself because I can't, I don't have the self-control. Um, so I use lots of things like uh, apps that block my computer from going on social media and that sort of thing for periods of time, uh, freedom and uh, other apps like that. Um, trying to get into sort of, Trying to stay on a routine as much as I hate routines, I need them. Oh, wow, this would be a good time to turn invisible. Yep. Okay, not gonna turn invisible. Selecting a bagel. Act super normal. Spider Man? You know, that's funny. I get that a lot. Hey. Hey, hands up! Okay, now we do a switchy switchy. What? Get back here. Where do you think you're going? Take on the bagel! In the last year, I started. Uh, working digitally i got my cintiq a year or so ago and justin's eyes lit up right there did you yeah. see <laughs> i did ask about justin about that a while ago just, mm -hmm. now, just ipads and things like that um I, you know the whole thing of once you go on your phone you suddenly become addicted because of the light and everything like that i find that actually happens while i'm drawing so i'm once i get started drawing anyways i have a hard time stopping so for once, technology is actually in my favor uh, and it helps me to serve, stay focused. It does also mean that my legs start to seize up and I can't walk after, you know, sitting <laughs> four hours straight. Um, so there's a different challenge that I have to work around, another work-life balance thing. Um, but yeah, I just have to, I, I need to get into that mood to just keep working. And I mean, that's sort of the ADHD thing where I do have a hard time starting, but also stopping <laughs> things. And it's, I, it, it's, it's an ongoing uh, struggle or challenge that I have to figure out new ways to work around. Have you found that since your um, diagnosis that it's easier to see it as a perspective rather than some kind of, like you said, you using the word challenge, but I wonder 
right? If you know yourself, you've spent a much more time thinking about your own work habits and what your triggers for productivity versus distraction are probably than a lot of people. Um, has it changed? You used to beat your, okay, so I'm burying what is some like uh, personal knowledge of yeah. Scott from, so for context for the dear listener, I know that Scott takes his work very seriously, but he also has a tendency, Scott, you tend to be self-critical of work that requires, that, that does not require that criticism. It's excellent work, but you second-guessed yourself and you would wonder and think and redo. But since you now see this new perspective, has it changed your relationship with that and listening to an editor who says, yeah, it's good, let's move on? Um. It has. I I think the biggest thing, because all those big changes, there was, you know, uh, a lot of, there was a lot of deep diving into myself and my history and everything like that. ADHD was one of the things that came out of that much later on. It was also other things of me being more honest with myself um, and things having to do with the, uh, becoming part of the LGBTQ community. Um, I think the biggest thing that comes out of uh, that I've been learning about that is also to be a lot more forgiving of myself. Um, it, it definitely is an ADHD thing, but it's also, you know, that even if you don't have the ADHD, that it's all these professionals who have that imposter syndrome and you've got to learn to be more forgiving of yourself. You are better than you think you are because you do put yourself down. So I don't do that as much. It's still there, but I try to- I think the, the internet makes that so much worse. Yeah. Like you were saying before, you know, like just at your fingertips in five seconds on Instagram or Facebook, you can make yourself feel pretty terrible real quick. Yeah. You know, and you're always comparing yourself to somebody else and you might be getting their glorified version of themselves, their glorified cleaned up version. Exactly. Of see all right. the blood, sweat, tears and shouting matches behind the scenes or whatnot. Um, and that's another thing that I've had to wade through and to, to figure out. And that's about the work-life balance. Um, so definitely one of the big things is, yeah, being more forgiving. Um, like before, you know, I would be like, oh, why am I not working as hard as Greg? He works these long hours into the wee hours and he puts out this work and he still was able to balance, you know, at that time, the full-time job or even after and things like that. Oh, why can't I put out that much work and that sort of thing. Um, whereas now it's, I don't know, it's a little bit different perspective. I now go, okay, well, part of the reason I'm not doing that is because I get easily distracted. So now I have to find ways to take away those distractions to be a little bit more forgiving because obviously they're, I'm only seeing one part of the story as well or somebody else's story. Um, organizing a little bit better, uh, doing things like doing bullet journals and whatever might help me to stay focused and whatnot. Um, sometimes giving my passwords over to, you know, like my boyfriend to, so that I can't go onto things for a while because I can't listen to myself sort of thing. So learning to manage your own worst enemy. Yeah. In the way. Definitely my own worst enemy sometimes. Could I ask, I'm just curious for, for both you guys, when you're working on a painting, what is typically going on in the room around you as far as like, do you, do you have movies or shows on? Do you listen to music? Do you need complete silence? Like what's an ideal 
work environment besides besides the work itself? Tea, I know tea is a big one for Gregory. Oh, tea. Tea's so good. But only at certain points. Tea at a critical juncture can become a distraction. <laughs> you have to be careful. You have to be careful. When that kettle whistles at the wrong moment and the idea goes up in that steam, oh, that's the worst. Yeah. The worst. Um, I'll let you go first, Scott, and then I'll... Uh, I'll uh, I have a sort of multi-phasic answer, so I'll let you go first. Yeah, well, I, I always have to have something in the background, and I've been like that since I was a kid as well. I'd be playing with my Lego, but I'd have Star Wars in the background, which is why I can recite it so well. Um, and I'm still that way. It has to be something that I, uh, like if it's a show, it has to be something that I am not too distracted by, which is why I have a tendency to just have the same things over and over, over again in the background. Um, if I get bored of that, then yeah, I'll do uh, music usually. Right now I'm trying to actually go through the Doom series uh, for the audiobooks again. Um, so occasionally I'll do that, but sometimes, I don't know, I get tired of that too, so. But I almost, I have to have something in the background. So lately for me, it's really dependent on what task I'm doing. Um, longtime listeners to the show will know that I wear lots of different hats. Um, and in this past week, I went through um, revising PR, uh, PR posts for our Kickstarter. I went through um, updated breakdowns of story descriptions to go to an agent. I did a new draft of a novel. I did 10 pages of illustration for another writer. I did some pages of illustration for a role-playing game, some graphic design work, and all of those things parsed up into kind of 20-minute intervals where I'm turning the channel on all of them all the time mm -hmm. to move them all inexorably and incrementally towards a deadline. And I've found that I have to divide up those tasks into small slices so that I can keep my foot on the gas the entire time. So there are moments where I have to have it be completely silent. And there are moments when I have to have super loud soundtrack or uh, audiobook or even a show running in the background, one that I usually have seen, right? Same as you, uh, so that I can kind of dismiss it. Um, and they're not lately, it hasn't been paired to individual activities. That's been paired completely to my mood. Mm. So it's like when I'm kind of angry or sick of what I'm working on, I find putting on something that's a slight distraction helps mitigate the fact that I've got too much work and I don't really want to be doing it. At least now <laughs> I feel like there's some other fun thing happening in the room that I'm tangentially a part of. It used to be that I loved to write in white noise environments. I would go to busy coffee shops, busy restaurants. I'd ask to stay all day. I'd, you know, sometimes pay for the privilege to just like turn it into my office. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with the event, 
that habit had to change. And also I have to change channels with the kids so often because we're here homeschooling them and they need uh, attention for that, that uh, now all of my distractions are based on Gregory's mood, not on Gregory's work. <laughs> and that has been a big change for me lately. What about you, Justin? Um, yeah, very similar to you guys. I, I really do like having something in the background and my go-to are shows I've seen uh, um, already. Uh, right now I'm on like a Coen Brothers binge. So I just finished uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou and um, the one with Tom Hanks where they're bank robbers. And I, I've been putting my tasks, I've been um, attaching them to movies. So while Oh Brother Where Art Thou is playing, I am working on this client's project. And so that's like two hours of like, I'm not, I can't do anything else. But when that movie's over, I'm done working on that project for the day send an update to a client and now I'm on to something else. So it's kind of helped time slot things. The time thing is really, I'll speak to that. You know, I was talking about those 20 minute intervals. I literally, it drives my wife insane. You set alarms, don't you? I have 20 minute timers, 25 minute timers where like the time is up. And so whether I'm in mid sentence or not on a pro, I just switch. Right. I am right. not gonna lie, I'm envious of you because I set timers all the time, but I also snooze them or extend yes. them yeah. and everything. Like, <laughs> that's the thing is I, I have a hard time switching tasks. So once I get, it's really hard for me to get into the project, which I think you mentioned on one of the somewhat recent podcasts, Justin, that yeah. sometimes like if you've only got like half an hour, it takes almost that entire half hour to get into that project. I'm the same yeah. way. Like I, I do my morning routine. I have my little social media, whether it's CBC or whatever. And I can tell myself 20 minutes, but it almost is always like closer to 40, 45 minutes before I finally get frustrated at myself and turn it off. Well, but I can I point out that if we're going to like just put the scorecard on the table, hmm. um, if we're comparing, if anyone's a dear listener and, and saying like, hmm, I wonder which method is best. Clearly, the Scott or Justin method is far better than the Gregory method. If you want to make work, work that reaches a broader audience right, and is more cohesive and is more seen as a body of work from a single artist. That's what you guys have in spades. Like it's definitely pays off in different arenas than the, the way I'm working, right? It has its strengths, what I'm doing has its strengths, but if we're talking about strict output and um, honestly, quality, from my perspective, the quality of the individual panel work that both of you do is of a higher, you're able to focus both of you on the details of the individual parts so much better than I am because I'm switching oh, channels wow. so often. Um, I think something that, that really helped me recently, what I've started doing is um, arranging my, like I, I bullet notes all the time as well, Scott. And like my, yeah, my journal is just nothing but lists of things to do. And I've started categorizing them in like small, easy tasks because when I only have half an hour, I'm not going to start into a painting that I want to spend the whole day on. I'm going to go to the page of really easy tasks that only take 10, 20 minutes where it's send an email here, send that print file there, like just little itty bite-sized things. Yeah. Because yeah, once it's, yeah, once I get into a project, I really want to be in that project and half an hour just doesn't do it. I need, yeah. I want like the, the evening for it. Yeah. Uh, something I added recently to my bullet journal is uh, to help me 
focused so that I'm not like distracted by these random thoughts when I'm trying to stay focused on something. I just have a separate column where I have on the go. And so it's like, oh, I have to email so-and-so back. So I just write it down and I come back to it. I have a list of things to come back to later rather than dealing with it now, which I think will only take me five minutes, but it actually takes me 20 and therefore to eat. And that's clearing up your headspace, right? Like all those little things are taking up memory, taking up RAM in your brain. And as soon as you write them down, it's almost, it it gets rid of that. It gets rid of that like little fly in your ear because now it's- anxiety related to the test, right? Yeah, yeah. So it it really, it's therapeutic to just write them all down and then you don't have to worry. Like, because when you don't write them down, you're going to forget half of them. Do you think, gentlemen, that there's a cumulative effect on our anxiety for when you hear or decide something and you say, oh, I, I shouldn't forget that, right? So if you have 10 or 12 things that you know you shouldn't forget, it accumulates and the more anxiety yeah. in the day. Whereas when we're writing them down on those bullet thing, I'm also addicted to like making lists related to the tasks I have to do. But I wonder if it's simply a um, management of that expectation and anxiety. I'm just thinking of that now. Discuss. Yeah, I definitely think it. All those, all those little things in the back of your mind do add up, and you might, you might forget about them, but they're they're still back there. Uh, and they're in, because you don't, they just blend in with all the other little ideas that you have. They now just become this great big dark cloud that overshadows you, and then all of a sudden it looks like this. Instead of just one or two little ideas, it's all of a sudden this giant mountain that looks insurmountable all of a sudden now. Totally. Uh, and I, like the other side of that, how many great ideas have you been struck with and thought, oh my God, that's great. I'm going to remember that. You <laughs> don't write it down. And then a couple hours later, you're like, what the hell was that great idea? I had something and it was amazing. And I didn't think in a million years I'd forget about it, but I cannot for the life yeah. of me remember what it was. Oh, that's so funny. You say hours later, I'm like minutes and seconds later. Right. <laughs> <laughs> See, my... My deep, dark moments are like a week later, I'll remember a bunch of things I was supposed to have done, but it's long <laughs> past, like there's no, there's no going back. And then that will hang over me. Like there's literally nothing I can do and there's nothing that could be done, but now it's the moment has passed. And often it has to do with like a collaboration or a, uh, you know, not a deadline specific thing, but a like task oriented part of a part of the job. Yeah. Um, Wow. Okay. So let's get down to it. Dave Robertson gives you a script. Mm -hmm. How much time, how much lead time? Okay. I'll be, I'll talk really specifically. I'm a little all over the place because I have a lot I want to talk to you about and we have a small amount of time. So let's just talk for a minute. Black Hammer. Yep. Jeff Lemire. Um, Robertson, they're collaborating on the script, or is Robertson writing the full script based on a synopsis, or how is those constituent parts made? When David was approached uh, by Jeff with doing uh, something in the Black Hammer universe, it was discussed as a possibility to actually have some of his characters from the Reckon Rises series in crossing over or whatever with the Black Hammer universe. And there uh, was an initial story, but we also only had roughly 10 pages to work in. And it was just a little awkward to try to cram these 
whole team of other new characters into this other well-established uh, series with the Black Hammer and the audience that it has that uh, we sort of, I hate this word nowadays because it's used too much, but we pivoted and um, instead David ended up creating a new indigenous superhero. Uh, I mean, that was sort of the big, I think that was the very big uh, theme or premise for uh, inviting David to write with the Black Hammer is to have that, uh, to give that uh, voice to an indigenous author uh, and indigenous issues and that sort of thing in, in that sort of story. Um, and then I come along because I'm uh, David's long running pool for helping to David's secret weapon. David, if you're listening, you know it. Scott is your secret weapon. Yes. Um, so there was, I know that there was some conversation between Jeff and David about that, but I think for the most part, it was sort of very much, David, just write your whatever you want to write or however you want to write it. Um, so this is a scoop that this is the first appearance of this character. Yep. And you're designing it? And um, I'd already be sweating. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not gonna lie, I'm like going, I've never done this before for, you know, like such a potentially big audience and everything. So I was like, oh God, I just hope I don't mess it up, but. Uh, you won't mess it up, you won't no, mess it up. But that no. is our fears, right? That's always our thing is if we're asked to do a certain kind of job, that imposter syndrome, that guy in the, with the clipboard, in our mind shows up to tick off all the ways in which you think you can't do it for sure. But at uh, a certain point, you just, you know, he's there and you just accept it. And it's, yeah. I don't think that ever goes away. If it goes away, that's probably a really bad thing. If you are a hundred percent confident about <laughs> a project, a hundred percent of the way through yeah. something's real wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for reaching out. I am the best. It is not a good look. <laughs> Hey, listen, you don't look so hot either, kid. Most superheroes don't wear their own merch. Okay, so you got to design a brand new character mm -hmm. visually for um, a longtime collaborator. That makes it easier, I'm sure. Tell yeah. me about that process. Uh, well, David, working with David has always been easy. Like, from the first time that we met, we just clicked sort of thing. Uh, it's like that uh, scene or whatever from, uh, what was it, Step Brothers with... Uh, Will Ferrell and yeah. John C. Riley is like, are we not the part where they're now? burying each other? But yeah, that, it's like that I comes like later. And karate. Yeah, are we best friends now? Yeah, it's kind of like that. Um, so we just really click. He tells stories in a way that is also the way that I sort of would visualize the story. It wasn't like broken down the way David likes to do with the panels and scenes and page breaks and everything. I I don't really complain about the way he does it because I would basically do it the same way more or less um so it's it's i'm gonna make it sound super easy because it is is that we just work so well that we're just very synced up and it, there isn't really too many conflicts or anything like that so yeah i mean i'm gonna call you on a phrase you've used a few times now mm -hmm. you said or alluded to the idea that it's not a lot of work but it's very time consuming and for a person who is listening to this, the dear listener who is finding a discord between these two ideas, like obviously 
it's a lot of work if it's time consuming. What do you mean by that? Well, there's problems with that phrase, you know, it's not work if you love it sort of thing. It, it, it's a little bit like that in that if you're really enjoying what you do, then it's not going to seem like work, but it is still going to be time consuming. Time consuming is only a problem if you're, it's things that you don't like or it's too administrative or uh, developmental stuff that is just making it slow and you can't get to the stuff that you really want to do uh, and things like that. So it, it, it's definitely long and time consuming, but it's not, I don't want to say it's difficult per se. <laughs> It just uh, takes a long time. It takes a long time. So, uh, when you're iterating a character, coming back to the Black Hammer yeah. stuff, how many sketches do you do? How many ideas do you have? Did David come and say, "Oh, the costume looks like this. It's this color scheme. Help me get here." Did he provide you reference? Like zero reference. I could come up with something, which was a little bit creates its own kind of anxiety because I mean, David and I work so well together. But I very, because uh, he's the indigenous author and has an indigenous voice, I don't want to trample over that. So he gave me a lot of free reign. It's like, oh, well, now I got, we have this indigenous character. Am I going to overstep myself? Am I going to mess this up sort of things? But um, so. Yeah, because comics. Reign, um, other than. Uh, he likes, like, he didn't necessarily want, like, this spandex-like superhero. He likes, like, also with The Reckoner Rises, he likes, you know, these more realistic, down-to-earth type heroes that cobble together their own costume and not, like, this, you know, unitard that's got armor built into it somehow by some advanced alien holographic technology or whatever. So no military-industrial complex superheroes like we've seen so much right. lately. Yeah. The, the villains might have that, but the heroes are usually, you know, they're putting on hockey pads for armor and stuff like that. And uh, can I ask as well, because I've, I've run into this issue a couple of times, how developed are these sketches when you're sending them to David to check over and how, how well versed in he is, this is a rough, this is a sketch, this is a close to final, you know, like that, that process can, can sometimes be rocky depending on how well-versed the client is on illustration in general. Yeah. Um, my first uh, sketches for the character, her name is Megan. That's all I've got right now. I don't know if she has a code name yet. Um, my initial sketches for her were fairly simple. I, it's almost like better than a stick figure, but it was more just the sort of shape because um, I did still want to create something sort of recognizably, potentially iconic in her costume that harkened to her uh, Indigenous heritage, um, but something sort of eye-catching, like a lot of other, you know, recognize uh, Dark Phoenix's costume sort of thing, for example, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's more just about simple shapes and not getting into all like the seams of the costume or wherever she's getting her clothes or whatever from like from the thrift store or wherever she ends up going for them. Um, but just the design of it and just keeping it sort of simple. Um, then I sort of played with some of the colors. Then I would sort of flesh out some of the other little details and just to, I don't know, 
David also, I was also trying to keep with what David also often very much likes is trying my best to stay away from any stereotypical tropes of indigenous superheroes and that, you know, it's like, you know, you didn't want what a it. challenge too, right? Because comics are so seeped in cliche. Yes. The color scheme, the mass dynamics, the reference to, um, say, nationality or heritage is such a cliche in comics. And when it dips into ethnicity, it can become so heavy handed and ham fisted. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's all about, you know, quite often they're either these noble savage warriors in tune with nature, mystic shamans. Uh, it's leathers and feathers <laughs> and that sort of thing. So I wanted to stay away, like try to keep it as modern because, well, they are living in the modern world and it, that world isn't so much like that so much anymore, but there is certain imagery and whatnot that then to sort of update it a little bit more. So just trying to... Are you doing your rough sketches traditionally or on... Um, I... Antique now. Yeah, I've been actually still, I've actually been doing most of my sketches still on the Cintiq as well. I've okay, sort of great. completely abandoned traditional wow. art for the most part. <laughs> um, um, but I just do them mostly because I, I'm always working at home and it's just easier. I can just do it on there and I can have all my layers and then I can still play with color and I don't, I've got everything available to me. So I, I very much, I don't like technology and so many other things. <laughs> sort of borderline Luddite in so many other regards, but uh, I really embrace this antique and just, I even do sketches in my thumbnails now and everything. That way I just don't have all this paper clutter, which is sort of my big problem from the last. Yeah, I can of... see Gregory's heart breaking a little bit. No, not breaking. I was the, front, <laughs> the pensive look on my face is as follows. There is a lamentation going on among comic book makers of a certain generation, and I'm stroking my graying beard as we do so, um, at the loss of the auteur nature of the comic book um, recluse. You know, imagine a figure sitting at his tilted, you know, wooden drawing table surrounded by reference, soaked in ink, you know, cigarette butts on the floor, a, a half a whiskey bottle on the windowsill, you know, looking listfully at a world they can never participate in. But, oh, they're genius on display on every page. This is, right, an unhealthy lifestyle. And one of the things that just being able to draw on your iPad has replaced. It's amazing. It's a wonderful a leap in technology that saves time and literally relationships and your health and all kinds of other things. And I think that that's wonderful. I love sketching traditionally, but I can do almost none of it at a professional pace. I have to work digitally in order to meet the demands of the you know, pace of a world that wants things when they want it and they're not forgiving if you miss the deadline, no matter how much more fun you might be having. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there is, it's not that I'm, you know, I like traditional drawing and painting and I get together with James Gillespie, uh, try to do it once a week to just what we call draw for fun for a couple hours where we have no agenda and we use traditional media and we just draw doodle and make stupid drawings for a couple hours. And I kind of have a safe place to get my hands dirty and it 
makes me not hate every time where I say, hmm, I'd really like to do an ink wash in this background, but then I'd have to set up the whole table. I'd have to do the ink wash. Then I'd have to scan it. Then I'd have to, well, first I have to let it dry. What if instead I take one of 150 ink washes I already photographed and use that? I wonder what the reductive nature of our art practice becomes when we keep going back to that same toolbox. So as long as you're learning new things, I think that's the key part. Double tap to release and whip it out again. Okay. Whip and release. And whip, release. Whip and release. You're an actor. Whip, release. Feel the rhythm? <laughs> like original art still will always have its place because that's sometimes an additional source of income. It's traditionally not been my source of income uh, is the original art. Like sometimes the, you know, the, uh, I do the Inktober sketches and sometimes those sell and that sort of thing. But for the most part, it's always the printed work. So in some ways it doesn't, you can do it traditionally or if it's digitally, it, the, the final physical product that you're putting into somebody's hand is that book or print or whatever. Um, I don't know. I, think I that's wonder if well, this is- A lot of shortcuts. If this is the engine running under that huge speculator market right now uh, related to original art in comics. You know, an entire generation of comics makers aren't using ink. So there are no original, they're copies with no originals. And I wonder if that's fueling that. Um, and Justin and I have both done the following practice and we've, we know um, Scott Henderson have done it too. Print your digital art out as a blue line once it's finished and then make a traditional version of that work so that there's still a one-off by your hand. But it's a bit of a, you know, I don't know what the word is, a little charlatan. You're reverse engineering your own artwork a little bit. Yeah, you know, and it's really only feeds a person's ignorant about what an original is. If they're like, oh, you drew this by hand? Is that the original? Well, it's the only one there is. One so one. I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Um, but is it really true in that sense? Uh, hard to know. Are you still a workaholic? Me? Oh, yeah. yes. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's tied with it. Like uh, those few years ago, I was delving into like, you know, childhood traumas and it's like, oh, well, this is the why, why I'm constantly obsessed with working or distracting myself with work and that sort of thing. But then it also morphs or it's greater depth as I investigate other things and leading to uh, the ADHD diagnosis and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm definitely still a workaholic. I still have a very hard time stopping, uh, working. I've been trying to create more of a life balance, like, oh, well, now that I'm home, it's like, oh, I'm going to exercise, uh, when my boyfriend comes over, cause he, he always exercises shortly after he comes home. It's like, okay, I'll exercise at the same time. But I did that two, maybe three times so far in the last month. <laughs> so I still, it's like, oh, no, I've got this project. I need to get it done. I wasted some time or I'm losing time because of the other job that I still have a little bit of or because of uh, doing virtual workshops that I need to do re research on or whatever. These, all these other things that eat away at the time. It's like, oh, no, no, no. I got to get back into work and keep working to catch up. But I'm always catching up because I'm always miscalculating how long it's taking me or I'm not taking proper breaks or... Whatnot. So yes, still workaholic, 
just trying to be nicer to myself about it and not beat myself up and why I'm not as good as somebody else or why I'm lazy or anything like that. I try not to do any of that anymore. I'm just like, well, I'm just taking a long time and that's just the way it is. I'll try to figure out a better way of doing it later on or the next time. Four years ago, when we had this conversation, it was uh, step one in my recovery as a workaholic, I think. I'm definitely still, uh, still, I'm a functionally, you know, like there's functional alcoholics, they can kind of go to work still and they get, I'm a functional workaholic. I figured out a way to make my family life work, largely because the event shut down the rest of the world, making me much more available. So my fear now is that as things open up, will the bad habits I think I'm over return to plague my personal life? Dan just shakes his head. Totally. I think he's agreeing with me. Like I'm doomed. Is that what you're saying? Shaking your head? No. Prohibition is over. Yeah. Are you going to jump right back on that bottle? Yeah. Oh, man. When you put it that way. Yes. Taste. My mouth is water. Um, how about you, Justin? Are you still a workaholic? We all admitted we were on the last one four years ago. Yeah, um, like I, I kind of recognize it and kind of roll it around in my head and, and think about it more often. And like lately, yeah, this like last weekend, I, I had almost too much time just to do art. And I actually felt like I burnt myself out a little bit. And so now that I'm, you know, I went out boxing and I'm going to hang out with friends later like the the other elements of my life um they they need to be in there as well and when i don't have those other things those other elements that aren't art related it runs me down and so i recognize that i need to schedule in time to hang out with friends away from the artwork and and stuff like that so i'm just trying to be a little more proactive and not give myself four days where i have nothing on my plate other than painting because i'll, I'll do it and but by the end of it, I'll be a little, little, little burnt, little burnt out. So, yeah. Well, this has been Super Pulp Science, where uh, returning champion Scott Henderson has been telling us about his return to full power comics. The best raw drawer in Winnipeg uh, is back. And I am glad to have you in the fold, Scott. Thanks for being on the show. This is Gregory Kamichek encouraging you all to join the fight and make comics. Mm -hmm.